Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by CashFly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This Week in Photography is sponsored by Audible. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash twip for a free downloadable book. This week on TWIP, f1.4 versus f1.2 lenses doesn't really matter. And HDR moves to video, plus a discussion with SEAL photographer Joseph Lanaster. All that and more coming up next on episode number 102 of This Week in Photography. And we're back for another episode of This Week in Photography. Today on the show, we've got a couple of the usual suspects. We've got Mr. Alex Lindsay, who's coming to us from the Twit Cottage. Hey, Hello. Alex. I'm here. All right. And, uh, I, miss what, you. I miss you, Fred. You have to come up and play with me. You know, I will. I will. I just have to do this scheduling thing so I can get up there and do it. All I'm right. happy. All I right. like sitting in the chair there. The chair there is comfy. They're comfy chairs. Yeah, even though I never get to sit on the Leo exercise ball, it's it's uh it's nice to be up there in the in the surroundings with all the twits. <laughs> <laughs> Is that legal? Can you say that the twits? I think you can. I think I, I you know in, in in some countries I think it's considered a uh, slight, but not here. <laughs> okay, we're in the twit cottage. Not not on that little plot of land right there. You're all twits. Exactly. Just like at Yahoo, people are all Yahoos in some places. It's derogatory, right? Exactly. <laughs> Um, and also on the line, standing by patiently, out of character, is <laughs> Mr. Ron Brinkman. Hey, Ron. I'm, I'm on an exercise ball today, so I can bounce. Are you? Do those, mm-hmm. things, those things actually work? Well, I don't define what you want them to work for. You, you can sit on them. You can bounce on them. I don't know. Beyond, <laughs> yeah, beyond that, I don't know what you expect out of it, so I suppose it worked. There you have it. So we just want to remind everybody that uh, this podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the Internet's leading provider of spoken word entertainment. Uh, for a free audio book of your choice, go to audiblepodcast.com slash twip. Uh, let's jump into the news, Alex and, and Ron. The first thing in here is, uh, looks like Panasonic has are re- talking about this GF1 Micro 4.3 body and lens. What, what is this? I'm looking at this in the notes, but I'm not exactly sure what it is. And it says Ron knows all about it. Ron, what is Ron. it? I don't know about knows all about it, but I saw this. It's very sexy looking. It, it's uh, I think it's you know a, a spy shot uh, of a little mi- micro four thirds format. So that's the small sensor format that is you know becoming a standard. Olympus is using it and all that. But this uh, this shot of this Panasonic Lumix camera GF1 is labeled. But it's just it just looks like a little mini SLR with nice little mini lenses. I mean this is this is where you know I hope a lot of this stuff is going. There's the the pen camera and uh, allegedly this new upcoming one from Panasonic but I, you know, I would love to see a robust ecosystem of these uh, small four-thirds cameras with nice high-quality lenses and then hopefully improving the sensor as time goes by. I well, think this, I mean this, I, this looks like a huge upgrade I mean this is this is a, I mean instead of having the fourth the the kind of 35 millimeter SLR kind of feel this is really getting into that pocket camera that you can swap lenses for. Yeah and you know it, it's the, the dilemma with all these sort of small but not super small is, you know, can, can you fit them in your pocket? Uh, but at least this way you could probably put a small pancake lens on it as your kind of default one and then carry around a, a longer lens or something a little more versatile if you wanted to swap it in and out. So I'm looking forward to this kind of stuff. I hope it ends up being a lot more. I mean, you know, let's face it, SLRs are big and they're bulky. And, you know, it's fine if you're not going far, but as somebody but who travels run- a lot. Wouldn't you rather have a iPhone that could, or not necessarily an iPhone, but a portable multi-purpose device 
that could also be a phone and a really good camera with all this stuff or because yeah, personally i don't want to carry all this stuff around all the time i want one thing that can do everything reasonably well well i you know you're, never, you're not going to get to the point of an iPhone having anywhere near the quality of a four-third sensor anytime soon. So, yeah, I don't, you know, I think it's it's definitely that mid-range between. Well, we've already been we've been working in that mid-range for a while with the uh, crop sensor cameras. You know, a lot of the reason for doing those was to make a smaller camera. Yeah. Uh, this kind of takes it down even further, though, to something that really is reasonably reasonably portable and doesn't require a huge gear bag. Uh, so, so really, I didn't, I didn't know that. So, the reason for having a, a cropped sensor camera, or the reason for those being developed, was to have a smaller camera. It wasn't because of cost or because of any technological. I, I, I think it's everything, right? It, it, uh, you can make a smaller camera that consequently costs less. But I mean, that, that's the reason why I don't mind having like my 40D uh, relative to a 5D. Is it is a smaller camera? I can get, you know, and we've gone down this road a few times, but you can get the crop sensor lenses, which means you can get quality glass uh, at a smaller form factor. So there are, there are reasons to do that that are beyond just bringing costs down. It's about size as well. And you're, are you still, I remember, what was it, last year or so we had this discussion about how uh, you thought crop sensor or the whole crop sensor camera bodies were better or at least okay compared to full frame? There, I think it's perfectly acceptable if you have a crop sensor camera to buy crop sensor lenses. I think it's, it's, it's stupid to say I'm going to buy lenses that are compatible with a camera I may never own. Well, but I think that the only th question is, is, don't we think that all of these cameras, I mean, at least at the SLR level, are going to a 35-millimeter footprint? That was my point. That was my point, that you're, if, you buy, if you buy into obsolescence, you're just going to end up paying the piper later. So why not just bite don't the buy bullet it. and buy the decent lens now and then upgrade your body when, it, when it's time? Uh, because, yeah, I, I, first of all, I don't buy the sense that everything's going to full frame. I, you know, and I don't see that happening. I have not. I've yet to really? see I have yet to see a low-cost full-frame camera come out. I mean, come They're on. They just haven't gotten there yet. Hey, now here's a question They're I have. Not gonna I, get there. So I was at a photography store uh, in San Francisco, and one of the things that I was ta I was talking to them about the 50 millimeter 1.2 versus the 1.4. Speaking of lenses here, just to get go down a rat hole here for a second, <laughs> um, is that you know? Does do either of you have a 1.2? I think Scott's the only one of us that has a 1.2. No, 1 .2. I have 1.4 only. Yeah, I got the 1.4. Well, here's what he told me. He said that the 1.4 they found actually to be sharper than the 1.2. Really? Yeah, he well, said. Well, what f stop, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, because I know that I'm not even using my 1.4 all the way opened. I mean, I find that 1.8, 2.0 is all I need mm -hmm. to go to, but it is sharper. The 1.4 is sharper than the 1.8 at 1.8 and at 2.0. Well, um, that's typically the case. But, you know, I guess, yeah, the question would be is, you know, at like at the sweet spot of a lens, which is typically around 5.6 to, you know, right? to 8. Yeah, you know, is, is the 1.4 sharper than the 2, the 1.2? I could believe it. I could totally believe it. I mean, you're, you're making compromises anytime we put together a lens. And if you're trying to put together a lens that's very, very fast, chances are you know, either something's going to give in the quality or something's going to give in the price. Right. Uh, the 1.2 is not a cheap lens, but it wouldn't surprise yeah. me yeah, that you, you also had a slight bit of steam. But you're, you're really getting down to nitpicking at that point, too, I suspect. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it comes down to, hey, uh, I could get this shot and it'll be a little you know, less sharp or I could not get the shot. So I don't know. I, I'd, I'd err on the side of having the 1.2. And if I could afford it, but you know, I'm going to stick with my 1.4. Well, the one that because well, I, I'm sticking with the 1.4, but I think that I'm going to get a a, a one point the 1.285 for my yeah. for the 5D. 
Right. I think that's going to be where I'm going to invest the big money. Because I, I do feel like, I always feel like now I've been shooting on a crop for so long, I literally feel like I'm um, uh, shooting with a wide angle lens now when I shoot out 50. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a big difference. Yeah. So anyway. All right. All right. On with the news. There's uh, More for Ron. Other, this other thing in here is about HDR video. And, I, you know, I've been waiting for this. And I wanted to have this d- discussion. Because there's been, there's been controversy around HDR I guess since it started with, since, I don't know, since digital photography started, people have been talking about, is it right to, to manipulate things? And then HDR comes along, which is kind of the, one of the ultimate things in, in massaging every pixel on the screen. And people say they don't like the look. People say they do like the look. But now it's moving over into the world of video. And Ron Brinkman is going to tell us all about it. Hey, Ron. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I have only one thing before Ron jumps into this camera. You know, the, and I think Ron can uh, probably... Uh, explain this even further, but the, you know, we want to make sure we're distinguishing between HDR and tone mapping. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't even like making that distinction because tone mapping is tone mapping now has this this stigma stigma attached to it of being that weird look that you get out of it as well. And tone mapping is just a process of sort of choosing what color ranges or brightness ranges get boosted or or, or pushed down in the image as well. It's you know I, I would I would just even throw that term out and just sort of lump it all together and as is post-processing on a raw file that has a lot of dynamic range and there's a lot of things you can do and it's not just necessarily tone mapping you can use that that you know shadow boosting shadows and highlights or whatever different tools you have there's going to be a variety of tools that lets you take these high dynamic range images uh, and pull something out of it that tries to balance what details are in the shadows and the highlights I mean, and we're really moving away, aren't we? Moving to a point where we're not talking about quantity of light anymore, and we're talking about quantity. It, we're. I'm sorry. I mean, the yeah, quality, I, quality, quantity, quality, not right. quantity, but quality. Yeah, I think that's. I think that is the case, is in in the sense that we're talking about uh, getting as much information as you capturing as much information as you can with the sensor, and then dealing with it in post. And it's it's really just. You know, it's not a, a night and day difference between what we do, already do with raw files. It's just you've got more data, so there's more manipulations that you can do. But we do it all the time with raw files where, you know, okay, I want to pull this down a little bit to see what was in the highlights. Or I've got enough meat in this raw file that I can uh, push up the exposure and see some stuff in the shadows. So you know, HDR is just, is just a very it's a higher dynamic range version of a raw file. If you can make the case that a raw file sh- should be considered an HDR capture format relative to shooting JPEG, for instance. So, Ron, just, just for uh, argument's sake, if you shoot RAW and you have a properly exposed RAW file, can you then go back into that RAW file and extract a one, a one f-stop under, you know, of course, the on and then one f-stop over and then bring those into a, an HDR application like Photomatics and come up with one of those yes. images? or, or, or not, Absolutely. You can. So yes. you, don't, you don't have to on the spot actually bracket your shots and get those those separate digital files you can extract those from the raw and spit those into photomatic and then go forward yeah absolutely only you know, the difference being you know uh, with a raw file it's it is like you said about one one exposure over one exposure under maybe two depending on the raw file whereas you know if you're really bracketing it's you generally start off with plus or minus three uh and some cameras can go quite a bit more so yes yeah, same thing you can bring it in and then you know if you want if you'd like that sort of look you get with bracketed shooting and then doing some weird post-processing, you know, like some of this tone mapping of those things that give those neon looks. Yeah, you can you can get that kind of a look out of a raw file very often, especially if it's uh, on a, a 
camera with a you know high dynamic range, like the you know the high end Nikon's or camera Canons. Mm-hmm. So you're not losing anything by going that raw route. In fact, what would you recommend, knowing more about this? Should you should you do it that way, or should you just lock your camera down in a tripod and make the three exposures? It depends how broad the dynamic range is as you're working with. You still, you know, if you've got a scene that's got extremely bright sunlight on some area of it and then dark shadows, something. If you're trying to shoot a guy standing in sunlight in front of a cave and you want to see the bear in the cave behind them, uh, you may not be able to get that with just a raw file you may need to do bracketed exposure of course if the bear is coming at you you may need to run but right <laughs> well you know i and i i uh i think that you should put the camera on a tripod and shoot nine exposures nine well, and, and that's the thing so you the reason you do this is to get the broader dynamic range of the scene to be able to capture everything from dark to light but there's no point in doing it if you're shooting uh, you know a, somebody standing in uh in the midst of fog where your dynamic range is only a stop or two and you know the darkest area in the scene is only a couple stops brighter than the lightest area of the scene so it's got to be for the correct scene to do it but where you see where you typically see these really extreme high dynamic range uh photos is you know, indoors with bright light streaming from outside or night shots where you've got neon lights that are overexposing but you want to still keep the color in them but you also want to get uh, the areas that aren't bright lights and that's where you need to do something that has high dynamic high dynamic range capture capabilities. I mean, when you see a full, when you do a full nine exposures, you know, in raw, and you stick them together, you basically have everything from the filaments in the in the light bulbs to the darker to the details in the darkest shadows. I mean, it, it's it's just fun to do. You know, just it is. And and, and but I, I think at some point we're going to get to where that's just the, and that's really we should get to this this news story, which is this this camera. This is a a, a video camera. But uh, it shoots full HD resolution at 30 frames a second, and they claim to get 20 stops of dynamic range, which is which is huge. So just just to sort of give you a sense of well, that's passing uh, film, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, film film is a is a harder one to quantify how many stops you get. It's the same sort of thing we see where if you're shooting different ISO, film has different stuff. But uh, you know, we always sort of felt that film was about uh, 10 to 12 stops. Uh, of dynamic range, your best digital cameras are also in that same same the same range. The, the the Nikon D3, I think I was just looking at um, DP review, and I think that they say the D3 gets around 11 stops uh, of dynamic range. So it's it's in the ballpark of what good film stock can get. Uh, things are a little different because with film you get more noise in the in the shadows, but the highlights fall off more gracefully. So it's not quite the same thing, but. 20 stops is so this huge. I mean, you know, it's it's still like 20, twice as much as the dynamic range is what you get in uh, uh, with the D3, for instance. Well, and, and it's more. I mean, it's it's more than just twice as much, right? I mean, it's it's twice as many stops, but it's that's a, right. a couple order. You know, that's it's doubling yeah, it, right? Every stop is a doubling in brightness. Yeah. So I mean, it, it's honestly when I read that, I, I was I'm actually pretty shocked. I'm shocked because I'm not sure I believe it. First of all, um, but you know, how does a camera manufacturer like this and you know this is a video camera but how does this how does this come about uh when we don't have anything approaching that in the still camera range well no the sphere on the sphere on i think does 26 there's still the still camera that they make Mm -hmm. that has been out for quite some time i think um i believe gets 26 stops and i've actually seen the output of that we almost bought but that that does bracketed exposures right no it's a sync well it it's doing it internally i mean when it takes a photo it takes the whole photo right there and you get it out and it's hdr but and it's I, been around for years. It just hasn't yeah, been able yeah, to yeah, do Yeah, but I'm pretty sure that's doing bracket exposures internally. It's yeah. not, you're not going to be shooting a, a moving subject with that. Right. It's, still, it's basically doing that HDR combination in 
right. in the device. Whereas this is truly shooting 30 frames a second uh, of video that has that extraordinary dynamic range. So yeah. it's pretty crazy. And, and you know, it's also pretty, uh, uh, it makes me pretty optimistic that there's still a lot of room for growth in the still camera realm uh, in the short term. So, right. I, I, you know, it, it's clear that we are going to be shooting you know, the equivalent of these bracketed exposures uh, with just a single shot within the next few years. And all of this tone mapping is going to be you know, considered part of the post-processing workflow. Moving on uh, from HDR, let's uh, chat about tethered shooting a little bit. It looks like it's now possible with the P6000 and the P7000 uh, via a firmware update. Now, I don't have either one of these. Do you, do you well, guys... Uh, First of all, what are they? What's, I don't even know. Is that, this is, um, That's the, uh, the, yeah, those are the little uh, handheld things that you can slap your, your CF or SD card into to uh, okay. download yeah. your images into them. So it looks like you can do, essentially, you remember we, we did that story a week or so ago um, about On One and their software for the iPhone that let you do sort of remote capture. Yeah, 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 yeah. okay. So it looks like they're doing that sort of thing with uh, with the uh, P6000 and P7000, which I've wanted one of those forever. It's like the the event photographers must have gadgets so that you're in the field and you don't have to load down with a gazillion CF cards and also having a backup on site with you. But would you guys use that if you had one, Alex? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, we shoot, I mean, we shoot a lot when we shoot video, we shoot an awful lot of video to drive. So, so we're pretty sensitive to the idea of not, not having to go in, you know, go to a, any kind of, uh, portable media. So it's, um, you know, that's great. Yeah. I, I think the only, the only, my only comment is it just, feel, it's, it's annoying to me because I can, it, you know, all the technology is there to just do this with an iPhone and a, sort of an external hard drive that plugs into the iPhone. And I'm just waiting for that to come. And, well, you know, it's got to be imminent. There's a company. There's a company on the video end of things. This is just. I mean, this is how easy it could be. On the video end, there's a company called eFilm uh, out of uh, Australia that we we buy a bunch of their adapters um, to use in our EX ones and EX threes, the the cameras that we use in the office, and uh, they built a a converter. So you can put a converter to our, a video camera and take any old off-the-shelf hard drive and plug it in. Mm -hmm. And now you can capture from the camera to the hard drive. It just doesn't have to be that hard. No, and that's the thing. I just know that there's going to be some little device that uh, you know, my iPhone will slot into to give me the, the interface and, and the visual feedback. And it's just got a hard drive in it. And the other end, I'll have a cable coming out that goes to my, uh, goes to my camera. And it's, it's just engineering. Should right. be there by now. Darn it. Yeah, we'll make it. You're an engineer, yeah. aren't you? <laughs> Pull it together. Yeah, we need I'll get right on that. All right. I'll have one yeah. done by next week. In your spare time. You know, yeah. Um, another nod out to our uh, sponsor, who's Audible.com. We're brought to you by them. They're the leading provider in spoken word entertainment. They've got over 50,000 titles to choose from that can be downloaded and played back from anywhere. And uh, Alex, I know you've got a you've got a recommendation here. Oh, I'm, oh, I'm really oh, anxious oh, to hear oh, about this. Oh, 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 okay, so I would you, wouldn't, you, I you in the back. <laughs> oh, 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 um, Mr. Lindsay, go ahead. So, uh, uh, so I uh, I talked about this on MacBreak and uh, a little bit when Scott and I were on, and I had just started it, and now I'm just totally hooked. It's called an omnivore's dilemma, 
And uh, my interest, in, so this is by Michael, Michael Pollan, and uh, it is really the guy who does it. The guy, the guy's voice is a little condescending, but outside of that, not, it's not Michael <laughs> Pollan. It's whoever they're having read it. It just makes him sound a little arrogant all the time. But but at the same time, the uh, the information is just fascinating. Number one is it, of course, you know, attacks the way our food is made here uh, in the United States um, and uh, talks about why it, it's problematic. Uh, and that's fine. The, the thing that is most interesting about it, though, is they, they visit a farm called Polyface Farms in uh, Virginia. And, and they have an entirely close, almost a closed system where, you know, all the different systems are all working together and making all the food and, and understanding why that makes sense and, and what it does and everything else has me want to go, you know, start a farm. So uh, it's as really, if as if it took that book to make you want to start a farm. I just wanna, somehow I, I think that's been in your head for a while. I just want to I I, I want to own my own farm. All am that's all I'm saying. So uh, so anyway, uh, uh, it, it, it's it's really a well well written book, uh, especially when you get into the science of how food is made and and it's all stuff that I've heard before. You know, when I grew I grew up on a farm and you'd hear about that kind of stuff and and you'd hear about the problems and and uh, and my uncle. Um, raises uh, buffalo in in uh, new mexico for, uh, for ted turner and and you end up with a lot of you know you you uh you know hear all the stuff but getting it all in one place with all the data and the science of why that's and, and the fact that corn is in you know everything that we eat and mm -hmm. um, how that might not be so good so uh so anyway omnivore's dilemma really well written great uh you know information and uh, and a fascinating um, the, half the book is about this uh you know it, it Typically, you would think of it as a liberal uh, person doing this crazy farm in Virginia, but he's actually a you know heavy libertarian uh, and doing it for you know independence sake, and uh, but putting together something that's just scientifically fascinating. So anyway, that's it. Omnivore's dilemma, and uh, that's just one of the ones you can get if you go to audiblepodcast.com/twip, and you should. Excellent. And I just want to throw a quick one in there because I had a little one. Um, and it's not related to photography, but, you know, it kind of is. It's called, it's this book that's been around since before even I was born. And before you were born too, Alex, it's called um, Psycho Cybernetics. <laughs> well, I don't know about you. You're, you're a young there. <laughs> uh, Psycho uh, Cybernetics. Just search for that on Audible and you'll find it. And uh, essentially it's a book that talks about the, it's a great book, and it's old. It's been revised, and you know, it's been revised to uh, incorporate things that are actually happening today, not, you know, lots of decades ago. But uh, the gist of the book is it talks. It's a self-improvement book that talks about pre-visualization of what you want to be and how to how to sort of say Frederick is a millionaire that lives on in a high-rise condo on <laughs> South Beach and has. D3Xs hanging all over the place and right up, you know, shoots models, yada, 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 you know, and then make that happen. Wait. So that's what it is. I'm smart enough, I'm good enough, and doggone it, people like me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> How to win friends and influence subjects. Very good. I don't so know anyway, if we have time for more news. We've been going crazy with the news. We have. Yeah. No, I think we're pretty good because we had those, those Skype cutouts. Yes. Anyway, yeah, let's jump through that and jump into the poll. Now, Alex, you were you did the show last week and unfortunately I wasn't on. But uh, what was the uh, do you remember what the do you remember what the poll was? <laughs> so for those listening, we have notes and somehow the notes that got uh, inserted <laughs> as the answer. Um, uh, we know we know what the results of the poll were, but we're not exactly sure. It's, what the, it's do you carry more? I, I do remember what it is. It, it, it's uh, it's do you use one more more than one CF card? 
So, oh, okay. uh, so, and it says absolutely is 89%. And uh, no, I go commando with just one in the camera. Uh, which, which, of course, without knowing what the question is, could be very complicated. You know, I looked at that. I looked at the answer. I'm like, I could figure this out. I know what yes. it was. Yeah. And I could, I could, it could have been anything. Yeah. So, the, uh, so anyway. And the, the, do, no, I go commando. Obviously, it makes one wonder if the poll was. When you're taking photos, do you wear underwear? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> now, how many how many CF cards do you guys have, or memory cards? Oh, total, uh, I've got to have probably about eight or ten, something like really? that. Yeah, wow. but I just but they were the the my older ones are like two gigs, so they're just in my bag as backup. <laughs> just two gigs. All my God. Yeah, seriously. And then I have um, I just got some sixteen giggers that I'm very happy with that I'm. That pretty much with two of those loaded into a D3 that can accept two of them, I'm good to go. You know. Yeah, I I have. Uh, well, I, I talked I think in the last show about my Pelican case, so I have two Pelican cases with uh, four 16 gigs in each one. Wow, such a slacker. Yeah, I know. Well, I mean, we we use them for video, so it's for work. Yeah, I was gonna say he's shooting video. Come yeah, we shoot video, so uh, each one of those will hold about 20 minutes of video. So. Oh, did you see? We didn't put this in the news because it's total. I don't know, out in the future a little bit, but supposedly Sony is showing. Uh, a two terabyte memory stick. Well, those are coming. You know, the XD cam. Or I'm sorry, not XD cam. XD spec is supposed yeah. to be a two terabyte, two hundred megabyte, megabyte per second read time. Yeah. Well, apparently they actually exist. Like they some, yeah. you know, but it, using yeah. one. So. Wow, it's that's, coming. That's all right. Well, you know, talk about having all your eggs in one basket. But hey, you know, <laughs> you yep. lose that card, especially you, Alex. You know, you you uh, you're shooting some irreplaceable video. You fill up that thing and it fails. Then what? Well, I you know, we, I just shoot lots of it and then I um, and then I move on. You know, yeah. I, mean, I just you know, I say I you know, I, I shoot so many images that like my my daughter was awake, you know, last last night or two nights ago, and I shot two hundred photos. Because she was awake, <laughs> you know. So the key is just keep on shooting them, keep on backing them up, and make sure that you have a big drobo to throw them all on. Keep so that the, shutter, and keep that shutter pressed. Right? Yes, exactly. And uh, so we've got another. We've got a new uh, poll. Yep. Uh, it, it is. Do you ask permission to photograph a stranger? Now, <laughs> uh, and the, the, before I go into it, the uh, the answers are yes, you ask, or. No, you just snipe and run, and I would I would say uh, it all depends on the length of your lens. <laughs> <laughs> if you're shooting strangers, wow, talk about not a, knowing what the question is. With a yeah, come on. If you're shooting strangers with a 14 millimeter lens and you're trying to get a portrait, you probably want to ask. <laughs> But if you've got a 400 millimeter, you know, Scott Bourne lens on there, then uh, yeah, you're probably okay from the bushes. What do you What do you guys think? Uh, generally, uh, it is the, the, I used to, when I was in high school, I used to shoot a lot of just people on the street and, you know, I will, um, if I'm going to do anything with the photo, uh, more than just taking pictures and people happen to be in it, uh, I'll ask them because I just, you know, otherwise, and especially I don't, in general, I just don't take pictures of kids. You know, that's the, that's the other one that, that I kind of stay away from, uh, just because it put, you know, a lot of, I know, uh, as a parent. Uh, someone taking a lot of pictures of my kids will get a lot of attention from me. That's probably not what they want. So, um, so I think that those are the things that I tend to um, stay away from. Ron, I would say for the most part, yeah, I, I tend to grab just snapshots of people from a little bit further away, and I don't want to, I don't want a posed photo at all. So I will tend to snipe and run, pretty much. Yeah, <laughs> I'm really good. I, I took, by the way, I did. I I spent. Uh, months getting good at shooting with my slr from my chest 
So like when it's hanging yep. around my around my neck, and I can actually I can actually get very good shots. Um, you know what you try to do is think about what you want to compose and fire, and then look at it, and then think think about what you're posing. And when you're walking down the street, you just keep on firing until you get until you get a feel. It's kind of like a gunslinger, you know, pulling out and shooting from the hip, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, but with it, you get a feel for where the camera has to be pointed to get the photo that you want. And so uh, I, when I'm, there's been a lot of times um, that I would uh, do that, especially on travel trips to Africa and stuff like that, where I just shoot from the, you know, without actually lifting the camera up. That's what gets, you know, the most attention. Yeah. You know about the, uh, the hentai oyaji in, uh, in Japan that are expert at shooting from the knee, right? On the train? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, no. I, I stay away from that one. Yeah. yeah, family, yeah. family show, Fred. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Japanese women that ride trains in Tokyo will understand what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, so let's uh, let's move on and jump into our guest of uh, this episode of This Week in Photography. It's a guy by the name of Joseph Linashki. I am here with a good friend of mine, Joseph Linashki. He's a photographer. Joseph is many things, but uh, at the top of the list, I would say he's at least from my perspective, he's a photographer. He's got a lineage back from way back when he used to work at Apple. In fact, if you've uh, been to pretty much any of the shows that Apple did when Apple was doing these big shows, you probably probably have seen him on the stage doing his thing, demonstrating everything from Aperture to to uh, iLive to everything else that Apple makes. So he's an expert in that regard. But uh, Joseph has outgrown as if anybody could do that, but Joseph managed to outgrow his uh, confines at Apple and has stretched out on his own and is making a splash into the professional photography scene by becoming the official photographer for none other than Seal, the uh, the recording artist Seal. So Joseph is going on tour with Seal and has the opportunity to document the behind the scenes and in front of the scenes action at the SEAL concert, and he's agreed to sit down with us today, literally, in my office uh, at my house, and we're, we're recording a quick interview here. Joseph, thanks for stopping by. Thanks for having me on, Frederick. I'm, I'm glad Joseph is here, but you know, I knew the one way to get Joseph to show up was to buy wine, and <laughs> so <laughs> we are drinking some wine here, and uh, we're going to talk about all sorts of cool things. The main thing that I wanted to talk about with Joseph um, is not not necessarily f- photographic technique and that sort of thing, but more business related. Because uh, when Joseph made the the internal decision in his mind to leave the company or leave corporate America and stretch out on his own, he did it the right way. He went and and did the groundwork. He did, did made a massive spreadsheet of all the ins and outs of gear that he needed. Incorporated himself, accountants tax, all this stuff. He did everything. So uh, the purpose of this interview is to get into his head as much as we can to find out what the pitfalls were and how he actually did it. Because now, Joseph, you are a corporation. Absolutely. Yeah, completely legitimate. Got all the insurance, everything in place. I am as real as it gets right now. Now, how it's from the beginning? How did you what? How did you start? Because you read, I read all these books on how to start your business. You know, you go get a business license, tax ID number, but but it's all these different. It's a constellation of pieces that you need to connect together in some sort of coherent mess. How did you know where to start? Well, you're absolutely right. It is a lot of different pieces that come together, and there's a lot of chicken and egg scenarios. You need one thing to get the other, but to get the other, you need the first thing. So it can be a little bit tiresome, a little bit confusing. And I found that some processes. You just had to bear through it while certain other pieces came together. For example, starting to apply for the insurance. Obviously, I wanted to get that set up pretty quickly. 
but I needed to have the business license, I needed to have my tax ID number and that sort of thing all in place. And so um, as I started to go through each piece of it, um, you know, some pieces came together quicker than I thought, some pieces took longer than I thought, and in fact, um, I'm just finally getting all those last bits in together. So happy to say that it's taken the better part of a month, but I think I am actually there. So what about in terms of just jumping in? I'm just going to jump in anywhere, not necessarily chronologically, but your are you accepting so you're a corporation but are you accepting electronic payments you know can you can you process credit cards um yeah so actually the payment part was probably the first thing that i set up because i figured you know getting paid might be a good thing um and i did a bunch of research on different bank accounts small business banking accounts and uh it's funny that you say uh, talk about electronic payments because that's actually what helped me make one of the decisions on which bank to go with, and that was B of A for small business, because they have a system set up where you can invoice your client online. The client will get an electronic invoice from B of A, and they can literally click on the invoice, enter in some bank details, and pay you electronically, which is huge for me because I travel a lot, and the last thing I want to do is have a check for a job that uh, you know that finally got paid sitting in my mailbox at home or in the studio while I'm on the road for a month. That's interesting. So so instead of so that is a merchant account then, right? With B of A. It's no, it's not really a merchant account. It's just a small business account with invoicing. It's it's one of the many options. You can accept credit cards with that? No, so this I don't have the credit card set up for that. Uh that is something that I could add to it, but clients don't really pay by credit card generally. The kind of clients that I deal with. Mm-hmm. Um you know, if I was dealing with individuals, then sure they would. But generally, I'm dealing with uh, companies, corporations that aren't paying by credit card. They're paying, uh, you know, they're paying just straight out of their bank account. And Seal pays with gold bars, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> gold records, I think, is uh, is part of the deal. Very cool. So then, okay. So what about business name, website, and all that stuff? We start with the website. I know you, 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 and I have been talking for what the better part of. Two years almost. You've been going through trials and tribulations trying to get your website set up and trying different things, WordPress, all this stuff. What did you settle on and why? So my web presence has been a bit scattered. I had a few different things going. I had multiple blogs, uh, some that covered kind of personal stuff, family things, some that were – one that was uh, really just about my photography, but it was pretty small, and then kind of a travel one. And eventually over time, they all merged together into what is now confessionsofatraveljunkie.com. And that's my blog site. Mm-hmm. Now, I have a separate website that is my portfolio and gallery, and that is josephlanashke.com. Now, when you go to either one of those sites, the way that I've built them is so that they actually do look like a single site together. Uh, there's a banner across the top that you can click between the blog and the portfolio slash gallery, and uh, they are actually two different URLs, but no matter which one you go to, you are going to get the same look and feel across the whole thing. I noticed a lot of photographers don't do that, you know, especially, I, I don't know, I, I don't think it's even specifically related to any genre of photography, but photographers, at least in the past, so far, I've noticed they'll, they'll have this gorgeous website, maybe it's a live book site or or Blue Domain or something like that, and all their work is in there, and then they'll have a blog link on there. You click on the blog link, and boom, you're way off in this different universe with a different paint scheme, <laughs> and everything's completely different, but you see the same work and the same name. Now, did you make the conscious decision to keep these things integrated, or, or what was your thought process? Yeah, I definitely did, but it evolved to that. There was a point for sure where the two looked completely different and weren't linked together at all except by what you've just described a single link that said blog and it took you to a totally different site opened up in a different window even and i think the point where i knew that i was truly bringing them together was when i turned off the open link in a new window 
All right, when now when you are in the portfolio and you click on blog, it's just another page on the same site. If you're in the blog, you click on portfolio or galleries, it's just another page on the same site. It no longer goes to a different windows. So you no longer feel like you're browsing two separate pieces. Good. And once I got to that point, obviously everything had to look the same. So they are two different domains and they are actually hosted by two different places. Uh, my gallery and portfolio is entirely handled by SmugMug and my blog and pretty much everything else on there is handled by Squarespace. And so the two of them, uh, you know, it took a little bit of work, but the two of them are now merged together and it is basically seamless as you as you look at the site, either the portfolio or the blog, uh, portfolio, uh, yeah, or the blog. Mm -hmm. now, now, how is how is SmugMug? How is the experience in terms of managing your galleries and, and all that stuff? And are you offering your work for sale off of SmugMug? Sure. Uh, so SmugMug is great. I, I absolutely love SmugMug. They've been great. And one of the things I'll say about them is they have fantastic customer service. Whenever I have any questions, um, I, I think it's 24-7. I've, I've sent emails, I'm sure, at 3 in the morning before and gotten responses quite quickly. And so they're, they've been really great. Um, I have uh, the plugin for Aperture. Of course, I use Aperture, and so the plugin for Aperture works quite well. I will, uh, you know, I can create a new gallery or create within the plugin, or I can create the gallery on SmugMug, whatever, and then just upload the picture straight from Aperture. And the way that I have them merged together, it actually is, is working out quite nicely. Now it takes a little effort and a little little bit of thought to it, but it works really, really well. Where, for example, I'll go. I'll be an aperture and I'll, I'll want to um, do a blog post or I'll, I'll have shot something that I want to put a gallery up online. So I'll upload the pictures and I might upload, you know, let's say 20 pictures to a gallery. And I want to write a blog about that, uh, a blog entry about that, but I'm only going to include, say, three pictures in the blog. Well, I don't want to have to upload the same pictures multiple times. So what I can do within Squarespace is include a picture in my blog entry that is already online just by putting in the URL of where the photo is. Mm -hmm. So when I put the pictures in my gallery in SmugMug, those pictures have sharing turned on so that you can uh, anybody can go to the site and, and get a link for that picture and I go grab a link for that picture and then drop it into my uh, my Squarespace blog entry mm -hmm. and then if you click on that photo it's gonna open up the gallery so you can see the rest of the photos so I'll have a nice big photo that's on the blog entry uh, but if you click on that it's gonna open up to show you the rest of the gallery so like a teaser like a teaser yeah and the the watermarking is handled automatically by SmugMug and so I have multiple watermarks in there. I have some uh, Creative Commons watermarks and some that are copyrights, just depending on what the image is. You know, of course, if it was for a client or not, or if it's just for you know my own fun or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. So the different watermark applies, and then that obviously carries through to the blog, and that shows up there automatically. So I don't have to think about that a second time. It's just there. Now, did you when you formed the business? Did you in, you incorporated right? So are you incorporated? Or are you an LLC? I'm an LLC, and I, I did a lot of research on what was the right path to go down. Um, there are some basically there's two two really good choices for someone in this situation you have either an s corporation or an llc and what i ended up choosing was the llc for one reason because it's a lot easier to get set up um setting up the s corp tends to be a little bit more complicated although to be honest i mean i did everything through bizfilings.com and it was all pretty straightforward but um one of the things i one of the reasons i was thinking of s corp was because there are some tax advantages to it and it turns out that you can actually register as an LLC, but request to be taxed as an S-Corp. Mm. And so you kind of get the best of both worlds. And so when I figured that out um, and talked to my accountant about it, she seemed to think that was a good idea. And so off I went. So that's how I ended up forming it. So for the folks that, that don't know what the benefits of choosing to, to form your business as an LLC are, why would you want to do that instead of just saying, hey, I'm, I'm Joseph Lenaski, 
a sole proprietor, right? You generally want to get away from being a sole proprietor because then you are liable for everything personally. Whereas if you have a company, um, an LLC or an S corp or a full corporation, you have some protection. If someone sues the company, um, they can go after the company's assets, but not after you personally. And I mean, obviously I'm not a lawyer. I'm sure there's, you know, there may be ways around it, but that's generally the, the idea. You have a level of protection there. So a potential, um, you know, someone suing you could take your company down, but they couldn't take you down with it. Now, could you at one point, if you decide that you're you're just growing by leaps and bounds, you're hiring photographers to handle all these massive jobs around the world, and now an LLC doesn't make sense anymore, can you easily step into a full-fledged corporation? Sure. Sure. There's steps to do it. Um, I think that it's a little bit more work than if you had done it that way in the first place, but there is no reason to go full corporation in the first place. So, um, you know, i at least for now, I don't have any employees, and even if I do, you know, they can be contractors or they can be regular salaried employees under the LLC. You can still do all of that. So you really need to get pretty big and be thinking about things like going public before uh, going full corporation makes sense, at least from you know, my research and my understanding. So for the foreseeable future, you can stay in LLC and, yeah. and be perfectly fine. What about insurance? So a lot of things that people people dance around insurance are like, okay, I'm going to get insurance through PP of A, or I'm going to put a rider on my homeowner's policy or something like that. What did you do and why? Uh, well, actually, you mentioned PPA. That's exactly where I did end up going. I I went for, well, for basic business liability insurance, which is really what you need. That's what protects you in the event that you know, someone trips over your camera bag on a shoot or you mess up a shoot and they want to sue you for it or something like that. This is what the business liability insurance protects you for. And... Um, I did a. I went and got a couple of quotes just from standard business liability insurance places, and also went through PPA and got a quote through their kind of. Uh, I guess it's one that's really geared towards photographers. You know, the company understands photographers and so on, and that one turned out to be the best rate, which was great. So it made me feel good. They understand my business. They you know know what I'm doing. It's not just a company that could be insuring a you know a used car lot at the same time, and. So they you know, they kind of asked the right questions and seemed to really understand what I was doing, and so that's what I ended up doing was getting my business uh, liability insurance through the PPA. It's not really through the PPA; they're just the ones who kind of uh, introduce you to the right companies. They facilitate it, yeah. Right. So then, so help me understand. So back to the LLC thing, which is a level of protection, so that some if you screw up a job or something happens that the the opposing entity can't come come and get your assets, right? So then. Why? Why have an LLC? Why be? Why form yourself self as an LLC and then have a level of protection also with the insurance? Like what? Explain that that sort of mix there. Well, because if I don't have the insurance, then any lawsuit would take my company down. But with the insurance, then the insurance ideally you know protects you from that. Um, and if I guess if it goes beyond that, then it, the worst that they could do is take your company down. But they can't take you personally. They can't gotcha. take your house okay. down. It's personal versus company. Okay, gotcha. Now then, what about? Um, uh, health insurance and that sort of thing. That's the other thing that, that people, especially in this recessionary times, everybody's getting laid off and starting their own businesses. The big thing that comes up is, you know, what if my kids need braces or something like that? How did you handle that? Right. So, yeah, medical insurance is absolutely critical. And it's, it's unfortunate that we don't have a, a global health system. You know, maybe that'll come. But for now, at least, it's something you definitely have to think of. So, there's two things. There's, of course, there's just the standard go online to you know any of the kind of e-insurance type places, and they all give you quotes. And it's funny because their websites all say that by law the prices are fixed and you can't get a better deal uh, somewhere else. Every 
package is exactly the same. Of course, what they don't tell you is that there's about two billion different combinations of packages, and trying to figure out what they are is, is just about impossible. So yeah. you definitely end up needing to talk to a, an insurance agent. And to protect an entire family um, at the level of insurance that you have, may have been used to from a corporate job uh, like I had at Apple, uh, it's extremely expensive. The insurance that you get through a, a big corporation is very, very good. And the insurance that you buy just for yourself is generally nowhere near that good. And you can... Well, def define good, though. What does that mean? It's levels of coverage, how much you're going to pay out of pocket if something does happen to you, how many checkups you get per year mm -hmm. um, before you have to start paying ridiculous amounts and things like that. And you can insure yourself for very little. I mean, if you're just insuring yourself, I saw plans that were basically about 100 bucks a month. But you at that point are banking that you are you're basically never going to get sick. You're never going to need to go to the doctor except for anything really, really catastrophic. And then it's going to cost you a whole bunch of money out of pocket, but still a lot less than it would have if you had no insurance. Mm -hmm. uh, if you have a family, if you have kids, as I do, then clearly that isn't enough. You need to have more level of protection. And so, for example, for a family, uh, you know, for me and a couple of kids, it could be a few hundred bucks a month, but then the kids can only get two checkups a year. And anybody who has kids knows that that's generally not enough because if the kid gets sick once, they're probably going to be in the doctor's office three times. So that suddenly is just not enough. So then you go up to the next level, which from the, what I was looking at was five visits a year. And that you go, okay, maybe that's acceptable. And then you're talking four to $500 a month. And then you've got to add uh, dental on top of that and vision on top of that. None of that's included in there. Um, now, what I ended up doing for now, because I have recently left Apple, um, when you leave any big corporation, I'm sure people have heard of the term COBRA. You have this COBRA plan. And COBRA generally pays for your insurance for X number of months, depending on what your severance package is. Um, however, once that runs out, no one pays for COBRA on their own because it's incredibly expensive. Well, uh, around the beginning of the year, or maybe it was late last year, I, um, uh, there was a new law that came in where the government will pay, I believe it's 60% of the COBRA fees. And actually, I think the way it works is the company pays it and then the government reimburses the company, but whatever. The point is 60% of that can be paid by the government or by your taxes. So that's great. So now you're looking at uh, you know 60% off of the COBRA price and comparing that to the regular that you would get off the shelf. And it turns out to be about the same. And so I ended up for now, I think it's um, I think it's nine months that I have that I can stick on that plan. But at that point, after that, I will have to go private completely, and I know it won't be as good as what I've got now. So, uh, talk a little bit about your your plans in terms of social media and what you're doing there. Are you are you doing the Twitter thing, and and uh, we know you're blogging and all that. So, sure. what, what's your feel on getting the word out about yourself and your business using social media? Okay, actually, if we could come back to that, there's one more insurance thing you haven't touched on sure. yet, go for and it. that's your equipment insurance. Ah. It's yet another level of insurance. Um, it's just like you know normal life. You have your house, your home insurance. You've got your car insurance. You have personal medical insurance. Now you've got business liability insurance and insurance for your equipment. And that's you know yet another big chunk of money that you need to. That's to where I up. put all my money because you know <laughs> the equipment you can't replace that. I can grow more skin. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually surprisingly affordable for the the equipment insurance. Um, you basically go through, and again, through the PPA, same thing, uh, same place I got the business liability insurance. They send you a, a spreadsheet and you just fill in how much gear you have, what it's worth, and there's a basic little formula, and for X number of dollars of gear, this is what it costs to insure it. And they ask you questions like if you shoot aerial and under, underwater photography, because they tend to add a little bit on for that. Sure. Um, but generally, it's actually quite affordable. And I mean, I would say 
cost of insuring all of my gear, which is a substantial amount of gear uh, for the year, is about the cost of a new lens, a, a medium grade lens, not even a really good lens. Sure. So it's it's definitely something you want to do. Yeah. If someone, just for the peace of mind as well, right? Well, absolutely. If someone breaks into your car, and these are things that are completely out of control. Someone breaks into your car, your your flight case gets lost by the airline, and they can't find it, and you know they're not going to insure you for the twenty thousand dollars of the gear that's in there. Yeah. So if that happens, you're now out of business. Right, you can't be a photographer without a camera. Right. So either you've got to go out and spend a whole bunch of money to get a bunch of new gear, beg, borrow, or steal it. You've got to have that, that gear to be able to stay in business. So yeah. it's, having the insurance is incredibly important, incredibly important. So then, so then on to the social media. Sure. How, do you, uh, how do you market yourself using social media, or do you? Do you think it's important? Oh, I do think it's important. Um, I think what I'm doing right now, it, it certainly is, I would call it marketing myself, but I'm not being really aggressive about it because fortunately right now I'm keeping pretty busy. Um, but it is the kind of thing that you're always doing just to keep the, the world at large um, you know, appraised of what you're doing so that so that you, hopefully you can get some work out of everybody else in the future. Yeah. Um, but I do I do use Twitter and of course I use my blog. Um, I use Facebook, but I, I'm of the mind that Facebook for me is a personal thing that's only my actual friends and family are on Facebook, people that I personally know, mm-hmm. whereas on Twitter, of course, anybody who wants to can follow me on Twitter. And I've had people approach me on Facebook who I don't know, and I said, listen, I'm sorry, I use Facebook just for personal stuff, but please follow me on Twitter, and here's my blog. You know, I'd love it if you follow me on there. Yeah. Um, so basically, the way that I use Twitter versus my blog is, well, we all know what a blog is. I consider Twitter a microblog. Yeah. If I've got something I want to say that doesn't merit a full blog post, then I tweet it. Um, I will also use Twitter to announce new blog entries. So if I do an entry or a couple of entries, I'll post a, a little, you know, 140 character summary with a, a snipped link on there and uh, get the word out and actually get a fair amount of traffic from that. I think that um, not everybody, you know, RSS feeds you. Not everybody keeps keeps up to date on the RSS feeds, even if they do. Mm-hmm. And certainly not everybody's going to your website every week to just check and see what you've been up to. Yeah. Um, so it seems to be kind of the easiest way for people to, to follow you. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, so you're not you're not twittering about, hey, I have a headache today or, you know, I have a, I have <laughs> my foot hurts, that kind of thing. No, absolutely not. And I, I will go weeks without twittering, without tweeting if I don't have anything to tweet about. Yeah, uh, and that's mm. fine. And I, I know that there's a certain amount of, of upkeep. You do want to just keep people. You want to keep saying something so people are interested. But I'd rather say nothing than say something stupid like the line is really long at Starbucks today mm. and end up losing followers because of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I'm sitting here. I'm looking at uh, the website for one of your clients, Seal. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you're going to be doing? When he's on tour? Yeah, absolutely. So this is going to be a great experience and a heck of a lot of fun. So my relationship with Seal goes back a little ways. Um, Somebody else at Apple, a colleague at Apple, had introduced me to him because Seal's actually an avid photographer. He's really, really into his photography, into his cameras, and uh, into the technology behind it and just loves it. And so we became friends through that uh, over the years. And as this opportunity came up for me to step out on my own, I talked to him, and, and we'd been kind of joking around about how it would be really cool if I was able to go on tour with him. But, of course, when I was full-time at Apple, that just wasn't possible. Um, but now that became a, an actual possibility. So he just finished his U.S. tour, and as kind of a, a test, I guess an extended interview process, if you will, I flew to New York, and I shot his show in New York at um, at the Radio City Music Hall and then also shot the show in Los Angeles at the Nokia Theater. And both of those 
came out great. The shots were great. They loved the shots. Um, you know, of course, working with the crew is very important, making sure I got along with the producers and the security detail and all these uh, different people that are involved. Yeah. And everything worked out really, really well. Everybody got along great. And so um, we started talking after that about the European tour. And the European tour starts, um, I think on the 23rd, I think of June is the first tour date, I believe. We leave on the 20th. And so on the 20th, we're flying off to England, and we have a week's worth of shows, or a week and a half or so of shows in England, and then off to the rest of Europe. Um, and it's going to be six weeks on the road. I will be on the tour bus, so there's two different buses. There's the band bus, and then there's the crew bus, and I'm with the band because I'm kind of documenting the whole behind the scenes and everything that happens. Yeah. So I'll be shooting stills. I'll be shooting video. Um, I have a 5D Mark II that's coming this week, so I will be doing a lot of video with that. Excellent. We have a couple of fun little things we're talking about that I won't talk about quite yet on the podcast uh, that we're hoping to do on here with in regards to video that should be really, really cool. And, um, yeah, just really documenting the whole behind the scenes. Again, you know, video and stills. Of course, I'll be writing about it on my blog. Uh, the expectation is a lot of this will get cross-posted to seal.com. Uh, obviously, the photos will get sent to seal.com, and they will post the ones that they want up there. And, um, yeah, it's, it's going to be a really interesting kind of embedded photographer with Seal in the band uh, as, we, as we run around Europe for six weeks. So when you, when you did these last two shows, how was that? I mean, you, you had an all-access, probably one of those, you know, don't-mess-with-me black passes where you could go anywhere on the set or on right. the stage. So how was that, having unfettered access to a it was, it was amazing. I, I think that the, the all-access badge is bigger than my camera. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's funny. It's this huge thing. So... It was a really great experience. It was, it was funny because I was told um, the very first time I went and you know, did the New York show, and I really didn't know what to expect. And I was told, you know, I'm going to be the only photographer. Great. Well, the very first thing I see, and I have photos of this, is in the very front, in the front um, kind of, what, five or six rows, there's probably a dozen long lenses pointed at seal. And I'm like, well, wait, I don't understand. So I asked the manager, go, well, what's that all about? And he goes, oh, that's the press, but they're only allowed in for the first three songs, and they're not allowed out of the pit. That's the only place they're allowed to be. Oh. Uh, okay. So, as you said, I had full access, and that really means everywhere. I can go backstage. I can be on stage. I can be in front. I can go down the aisles. And obviously, I don't want to get in front of people and block their view because you know, these are paying customers. I don't want to, don't want to upset, the, uh, upset the fans. But, sure. um, so I'm very conscious of that, of course, but I really can go uh, basically anywhere. And it was funny the first – uh, the first half of the show, I kept getting stopped by security and questioned, and, and eventually towards the end of it, I could hear the security guys on the radio to each other saying, yeah, no, that guy's okay, he's cool, he's cool, it's all right. Um, and it was it was great. And so the first show, I think I probably shot over a thousand frames of the first show because I just didn't know what I was getting, and you know, uh, it, I, I didn't know where to start, basically. Yeah. I just shot everything. Sure, you overcoverage. Right? Oh, God, yeah, completely. And then the second one, uh, I probably shot less than half of that. And I know that as I move on, I'll probably end up shooting less and less because I will find a particular thing that I want to get. This is unique to this venue. I'll focus on that. I'll stay in one spot for a while, make sure I get some really good frames, and then move on to something else. Um, And shooting the same shows over and over really allows you to think outside of the box of it's not just a picture of Seal on stage. It's I have some photos that I really like where you can't see Seal at all. It's it's this massive venue. You see people dancing. You see you know a couple slow dancing to one of his songs, and there's all this lights and action in the background. So something's going on. On its own, you wouldn't know what it is, but of course, it's part of the seal show, so you know yeah, that that's it, what it in, is. In context, it makes sense. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so it's fun to be able to focus on those kind of things, doing the same shows over and over, having that opportunity. Well, congratulations, dude. It's uh, it's good to see you. You've got the runway 
lit up and you're ready to take off. So uh, congratulations and best of luck in everything that you're you're about to take off. I have no no doubts that you'll you'll hit it out of the park. Thank you very much. It's going to be going to be a lot of fun. So yeah, I'll be back from this show uh, the beginning of August. I think I'll sleep for a month and um, and then you know, hopefully start drumming up some other work. Cool. Well, tell folks where they can they can follow all this stuff. So josephlanashke.com, which uh, someone's going to have to put in the show links because no one can spell my last name. <laughs> uh, but that's one of the other reasons I have my blog called what it is because anybody can find this, confessionsofatravelljunkie.com. All one word, all no spaces. No spaces, no underscores, no hyphens, no funny symbols. Um, and then on Twitter? And then on Twitter, travel underscore junkie on Twitter. There you go. All right, Joseph, thanks a lot for taking the time. Thank you, Frederick. And again, good luck. Thank you. All right, that was Joseph Lenaski, the official photographer to none other than SEAL, who was embedded with the SEAL tour, running all over Europe and taking great shots. If you want to learn more about Joseph, just check the show notes on twiplog.com or follow him on Twitter at travel underscore junkie. And uh, let's jump into the listener questions. First one up is for you, Alex. Someone wants to know about video editing software for the 5D Mark II. Uh, yeah, so the question is, I'm experimenting. This is from Nick uh, Grisafe, uh, and uh, he said that I am experimenting with the video quality of my 5D Mark II and was wondering if you had any software suggestion uh, on what to use to edit the video. Right now, I shoot the video and don't know what to do with it. Uh, I su- um, a suggestion on a starter book on video would be helpful, too. I know I know um, this is photography, but... So, um, so what we use is... Uh, uh, we use Final Cut. You know, what I mean, that's what we that's what we edit in. Uh, one of the interesting things about uh, the 5D and some of the idiosyncrasies of the 5D and iMovie, which we haven't really tested, we haven't really tested the 5D in iMovie, although I do believe it works. And one of the things that's interesting is that iMovie only works in 30p, and the 5D only works in 30p. So they might get along actually fairly well together. I have to admit, since we have uh, Final Cut, you know, on the on on all of our machines, uh, that that tends to be what I edit. Um, the stuff that I do. That's uh, kind of a pricey solution, though. To jump it is. Right it is, and, and that's why. That's why I was suggesting iMovie. We should. I yeah. should test it to see if it. If it. If how well it works in iMovie. I'm guessing that it works very well, and it's. It would be a great solution for the for for um you know to edit, and so that would be the one that I would probably look at. Um, the as far as shooting video, I mean, really, you want to take a look at just you know. There's a lot of great books on just shooting video. There's one called. Um, oh, now my mind is gone <laughs> but but that was the three the c's i'm sorry the three c's of cinematography uh, so, or five c's it's not five three c's. it's yeah, five yeah. it's five uh it's five c's five. of cinematography and that's a great book to start with that's a great first book if you're going to start moving from film from and, and what you're going to find is that you're going to frame a lot the way you framed when you shot stills except you're going to let things move and, and that's the and the only thing you have to get good at as a still photographer. I find that you tend to want to move around a lot. You fire, you want to get another angle. You fire, you want to get another angle. As a video photographer, what or as a videographer, what you want to do is is hit and hold and let the environment happen in front of you. Uh, I think a lot of times people who are jumping into it tend to move their camera too much. So uh, I tend to let my camera sit. Um, there's two different approaches. One is to let it sit and you know let everything occur in front of it. The other one is kind of what we tend to call an active view, which is whatever I would do when I was looking at something, walking with someone, I do it through my camera. And 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 if you let yourself, it's kind of it's very right brain. You just let yourself go, and you yeah. start shooting the angles that you. Oh, I want to see that, and you go down and shoot it. Oh, I want to see that, and you go up and shoot it. And and that's another way to to do it. But the 5D, I have to say, I just I don't carry anymore. I, I've stopped carrying around a handy cam. 
you know, it's, I'm, I'm kind of done, you know, really? I, I, yeah, so it's I mean, that, it's that good. And that means a lot coming from you as, as much of a stickler on video quality as you are. So you're, you're saying that no more the, the Canon yeah, no, handy I mean, cams, those are they, all in the closet. Yeah. I'm not taking those. They're not in the, in, in the bag anymore. I mean, I just can take I, my 5D out. Can I have one? <laughs> <laughs> Since you're not using it, can I? <laughs> we still use them in the office. There are, they, they have other uses. So the, um, but but I think for for me, what I want to carry around, I think we finally reached that merge where we um, uh, where the, the camera just really shoots great video. The one thing that I I haven't that I need to get for my camera, which I haven't gotten, is an ND filter because you know if you when you're shooting stills and it's a bright day, uh, you you can just let it go to a faster shutter speed. But when you do that with video, everything looks really stuttery. So then there's the process of going, you know, uh, by adding an ND filter, I can uh, open that aperture back up to one sixtieth of a second and get good uh, exposure. So that's the one thing that is uh, a little bit different, you know, in, yeah. in the process. Yeah. So then, uh, so the kind of things that you shoot, Alex, I know, so of course with a new baby, you're shooting lots and lots and lots of video of the new baby. What are you doing with the video? Are you, uh, you actually posting it or is it just archival? You know, I haven't posted it yet. Most of it's archival. You know, most of it's approaching the idea that, you know, I'm not, I'm never going to get a chance to do this again. So, you know, so I shoot a lot of video, not knowing what I'm going to do with it. Uh, but I just shoot stuff that if, if, uh, it's an interesting, um, you know, moment. Uh, I'll shoot it. My I took my son to the beach the, for the first time, and so him running around and rolling around in the sand uh, turned out to be you know some pretty picturesque stuff. And what's great is is, is just a switch in a switch. I go from I, I shoot video and he's running around, and then I switch over and I start shooting stills, and I get great stills, and then I switch back over to video, and it's just ugh, you know, it's, uh, it's it just makes way way more sense. Well, speaking speaking of uh, video and and shooting that kind of stuff with the DSLR, there's another question in here for you, Alex. It's from uh, Matt Searless, and he says uh, essentially he's using Final Cut Studio, Aperture, and Photoshop, and he wants to know the best way to get a sequence of images into Final Cut or Motion, um, and would it make sense to use color instead of Aperture to color correct those images once they're in, etc. And he's he's specifically talking about shooting sequences he's shooting on a 40d so he's not shooting video per se he's shooting some kind of time-lapse stuff that he wants to assemble yeah. it sounds like yeah so the the easiest way to assemble uh the way we assemble sequences so we still when we render uh even 3d sequences i was doing that until early this morning uh we render we tend to render in, in image sequences uh it's more stable than QuickTime, uh, and it allows it gives us a lot make sure that we're frame accurate when we have lots of passes and uh the the easiest way to recompile those is to open them in QuickTime. Uh, QuickTime will do it. Uh, Quick, QuickTime Pro. Time Pro, right? Uh, will do. Will open image sequences. So you just you 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 go open image sequence. You select Im the first image and then you load them all in and then you save it out as QuickTime. That's usually the easiest way to manage it if you're going to bring it into in, into um, Final Cut later. It, it's been my experience anyway. Um, that it, it just kind of keeps them all in one place. Um, it, a lot of people have a hard time moving stuff around otherwise um i know that you can bring image sequences into motion as well um in final cut it gets a little tweaky uh so I, you know it's uh, as i said i would just bring them in and turn them into quick times uh and then you can in, when you bring them in you can tell QuickTime what the frame rate you you want is so do you want it to be 15 frames a second or 2398 or 30 2997 or 30p or whatever whatever you want so right. um, you choose your and yeah. you can choose your output format then as well if you want to go out to h.264 or whatever or, or if you're going to edit you know moving it to something like apple prores is a really good way to um you know kind of have it set up so that and especially now that if you get the new final cut you know, apple prores 4444 um is or four by four i think is what they're calling it uh is also a, a great solution for that 
Excellent. All right, let's move on. Uh, cloud backup strategies is a question from Daniel Bird, and it's directed at Mr. Ron Brinkman. Yes. He says, <laughs> I'm thinking of setting up an NES box, uh, store a copy of my photos, uh, also have a copy of my main desktop PC and my Lightroom catalog. Considering using cloud storage from an internal, external backup source, so just in case the worst would happen to our house, everything can be replaced. Uh, does it sound like a good strategy? Basically, two copies locally and one copy in the cloud, That's, which is exactly what I do. Um, I have a big internal hard drive where I keep most everything. Uh, I have my Drobo, or I have a couple of internal hard drives. I have my Drobo then, which then is sort of my secondary local backup. So I push copies of everything over to the Drobo, which is a redundant source right there as well. Uh, and then pretty much everything I also have backed up to the cloud. And th there's a number of cloud backup solutions out there. Uh, but the thing that I sort of, when I looked around, uh, the main thing is you know, there are places that offer, and some of them charge you by the megabyte uh, that you upload. And if you're really going to be doing a large library of photos, that, that can get pretty pricey. So you can find them out there that are um, just a flat monthly fee for as much as you can back up. And the one I settled on after trying a few of them, I tried Mosey for a while and gave up on that. Um, so when I settled on is Backblaze, and anybody that's listened to the show <laughs> somewhat regularly has probably already heard me talk about Backblaze a few times. But it's just Backblaze.com. It's been totally bulletproof for me. I've had to back, pull back a few things. Uh, it just sits in the background. You don't even think about it. And it's more than just you know getting your photo library backed up. It's if you have it running in your laptop and you're writing documents or whatever. Uh, it, it basically is sort of always watching and backing up to the cloud. So it's rare that I will ever, ever have a document that's more than, you know, an hour out of being backed up. So even if something happens, you know, my recovery, you know, the, the amount of stuff I lost is very controlled, very limited. So that's how, totally my how suggestion. Much, how much stuff do you have up there right now, Ron? I think I have about a terabyte up on Backblaze. Uh, and how long did it take to get that terabyte up there? Uh... Hard to say. It didn't all go up at once. I mean, you know, if you're starting from scratch uh, yeah. and want to put it up there, it depends on the speed of your network. It's not throttled, uh, but, you know, I suspect that a typical home network, yeah, it's, it may take you a couple of weeks to get it all up there. But, you but know, it happens, you just, in, it happens in the background. It's just yeah, going to sit there and it runs and, you know, it's just, just pushing it up over time. And then once it's for, up there, you know, and the once it's up there, it's just doing a delta on it. For the folks that are say, because this is this is the problem that I had with Black Backblaze uh, before I got the the machine I'm working on now, which is a desktop machine, um, was my my MacBook Pro travels with me, so it's not on all night. You know, it's not it's not on and connected to the network at for any lengths of time that I can afford for it to be just doing a backup whenever it felt like it. So the the net of that was Backblaze was always trying to get you know a couple of megabytes up here a couple of megs there whenever it found the time and if i was you know god forbid doing something like a podcast i'd have to shut it off completely and then forget to turn it back on but so is there any solution for folks that are portable based and don't have the luxury of leaving their machines on all the time to pump that data up uh, like can you mail them a drive or something like that so that you can just get a head start on that first step of data dump i don't i don't think you can mail them a drive but i think uh, you know, I, what I would say is that there's a lot of configurations there on how you do your backup and also uh, sort of configuring the bandwidth that it uses. So, I mean, what I ended up doing is I don't have a whole lot on my laptop. Yeah, I guess if you only have a laptop, then it's sort of an issue. But I tend to yeah. not have a whole lot on my laptop that's not already on my big machine as well. 
Uh, and so the laptop backup is just sort of incremental stuff. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you know, I, I would say uh, you can certainly set it up so that it only backs up uh, at certain times or uh, really throttles the bandwidth so it's not going to even interpe- interfere with most of what you're doing. Uh, but yeah, there may be other solutions that are an easier way to get up a whole chunk, but I really think it's probably just a matter of finding a place where you can do a bulk upload, getting it up there, and then beyond that, it's, it's all incremental, so it's not that time-consuming. And what, is that, what does that cost you? Backblaze is like $5 a month or $50 a year per That's computer. Cool. Yeah. That's cool. Cool. So, I mean, Alex, it's, it's Alex. just so, yeah, it's crazy not to have a cloud backup strategy in place, though. I just I can't yeah. stress that enough. Yeah, is that what you're using, Alex, or do you have a, a cloud strategy? Or are I, I, you? I have your, a, your company is a cloud, right? So <laughs> yes. Uh, no, I, um, I, uh, I have. A, it's my strategy. I haven't. St- we haven't started it yet. So uh, mm-hmm. one of the big things I had a tr- trouble with is that I had so many terabytes that I had to upload that I wasn't sure how I was going to do it mm-hmm. um, because I was actually concerned because I'm on Comcast and one of the other things you have to deal with with the cloud in the initial push is that there is a limit to the bandwidth on a lot of these uh, subscriptions. So, for instance, with uh, Comcast, is 250 gigabytes uh, a, uh, a month, uh, which I, I don't hit on, a, on an average consumer basis, but if I started trying to upload my entire uh, library, I, I would. And, um, but now we have, a, uh, we have a 10 megabit or ten, yeah, 10 megabit connection at the office. Yeah. And so now I'm going to you know, spend some weekends and just flush the system. And once I get the system up there, I, you know, I, I don't expect to put up more than, a, uh, you know, 100 gigs a, a month. So, so I think that that'll be fine. Uh, it's just that first push that I've, that's been putting me off. Uh, but my plan is basically to have a Drobo that holds everything uh, and then have that sync to uh, Backblaze. Uh, that's, that's where I'm going to. Okay, so then that, two, that 250 gigabyte limit, um, I didn't know about that. So what happens <laughs> if you... Yeah, I'm speaking from you know. Okay, crap. What <laughs> Sud- suddenly, Fred was like, Whoa! suddenly, Whoa! <laughs> suddenly, this is important. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. So, yeah, Fred was like, ah, oh, this is another talk about backup, and then he's like, Whoa? Uh, yeah. Oh, so man. most of the- are they going to shut me off, or do they just charge me like, oh, for each megabyte beyond 250, it's 500 dollars? You know, they're what? pretty nebulous about it. So a lot of these, uh, you know, Comcast has been fairly nebulous about what they will do, uh, and and so I'm not entirely sure. I- I've been just trying to stay away from it, uh, and so. Uh, and I know that we're getting closer because my wife is using her Roku constantly, and so or our Roku um, that's connected to my Amazon account, which is uh, so I, I get to see all the movies that she's watching now. And uh, but as she watches more and more of these HD movies, you know, I think that we could be approaching that 250 gig at home pretty quickly. And so um, you know, I'm trying to do a lot of my heavy backing up. If I had to put up a lot of big files, I do that from the office. And uh, we're actually recent. <laughs> We're looking at new space. Our our uh, our lease is coming up, and one one of the spaces we were looking at has a hundred megabit pipe. And I was just like, there you go. and I was like, how much is that? It's like, oh, it comes with the rent. And I was like, <laughs> I just stood there and stared at them. You know, just oh, I was like, man. oh. So anyway, so doing it from work is is really the um uh the way I'm going to do it. Uh, I know that that might not work for you, but, um, yeah, that's yeah. I'm a consumer. I'm living in a consumer house and I've got regular Comcast. I was thinking of upgrading my Comcast line to the business class. So ultra I, high I, school, I know, I know we're not getting into kind of a tech conversation, but I, I talked to the guy at Comcast about the business versus the home. And he said, the only thing is, is that people will show up in 24 hours to fix your business one. And oftentimes a couple hours, but the actual performance is uh, almost identical. Ugh. You're killing me. And the limits you're are still there. You're just ruining my day. Yeah, Sorry, that's man. it. That's it. it. I got to get Fios. 
Um, I, no, I don't. I don't know if I can get files. I know I can get AT and T Uverse here, but I had some issues with that, and I canceled it and went to Comcast. But we're yeah. now in this week. This week in, uh, in bandwidth. Internet. Bandwidth. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. All right. We, all right. On today. on to the picks of the week. So since since Alex Alex clued us in that we are dwelling on off topic things, Alex, you can kick us off with a pick. Uh, so uh, my pick of the week is uh, <laughs> that I. Don't a lot of people pick. have asked me. No, no. A lot of people have asked me uh, <laughs> to do the one thing that I haven't done is a video about my bag, which I got to do. Mm-hmm. But I'm going to pick my bag because I keep on trying to find a better bag and I can't find a better bag. <laughs> I can't find a better bag, and it's time for me to tell you know just remind people I have I have a DR four sixty seven from Kata, and I love it. Really, I love my little bag. What's so? What's good bag. about it? Why? It's just the right. It's the right stuff. I mean, it, what's in it? So, what's in it? So you like, got it, it'll hold a laptop up to seventeen inches. I, I have a fifteen inch, so it's plenty of room for the laptop. The only thing I'd like is to have a little sleeve in there to put magazines and other things in there in the laptop area. That'd mm-hmm. be the only thing I would add to it. But anyway, the uh, and then it has a top area that's open, but it has it has pockets, you know, pen pockets and an extra little pocket, and it's got a big pocket on the top. The great thing about it is, is that it has these three front pockets. It's got a middle pocket and two side pockets. And for some reason, it's just the right setup for me to put. I put all my iPod stuff in one side. I put all my, uh, all my general connectivity cables in the other side. And, mm-hmm. uh, and then in the middle, I put um, usually energy bars when I'm traveling. <laughs> so so, Smart. You know, so, so I, I never have to eat anywhere that I'm at. And so um, it's usually like a bunch of like Nutrisystem bars or whatever. And so and then in the bottom, there's enough for my 5D, two lenses, charger, you know, that type of thing. And for a long time, I, when I had a when I had a, when I was taking a video camera with me, there would be a video camera with its charger, the five, you know, my SLR with two lenses and oftentimes a hard drive. Now there's two hard drives, the SLR, a lens um, and uh, well, actually two lenses and, uh, and some chargers. And it's all it all fits in there. And it's then I have to admit, I'm. This along the the other thing I will pick along with this is the Eagle Creek bags that I get that that I I pack every I'm so um, just, just in case you're wondering I'm a little uh, uh, OCD about my packing and so <laughs> yeah I'm a little OCD about my packing so I everything's packed in uh, everything in my suitcase and everything in my in my Kata bag or almost everything is packed in these little uh, I have I have like every size of Eagle Creek bag you can possibly imagine all these little like squares, uh, yeah. little squares and big squares and little and, and so they're all in there and they all have each one of them has its own rules about what goes into it, uh, and and it makes it much easier when they b- take everything out of your bag at the airport to put it all back in and know that you have everything, and uh, and also when you're when you stick your hand into it, um, you know in a in a when it's in the overhead, I can feel around. I know exactly which bag to grab and pull it out and get my battery or get whatever I need. And so, uh, so anyway, the, the combination of those two is just a great way to store everything. Wow. I, I will say that Kata, now I've got a Kata bag too, and uh, I cannot say enough about the quality of their products. It's, it's just yeah. it's bulletproof. Yeah. Wow. See, anyway. now I'm left out. I'm the only one, I'm the, I guess I'm the only one not using a Kata bag. I'm using a uh, low pro system and have been. Okay. So I've got, we, won't, we, won't, we won't hold it against you. I'm happy with the low pro. I've low got the sling, good. the sling, and uh, several of the different kind of backpack configurations that I use depending on the the kind of shoot that I'm going on, including the largest one that I found from them, which is kind of a roller backpack thing with a telescoping arm that you can roll through the airport with all your gear in it. And I I love that stuff. I'm just, you know, but uh, what I found, and I know a lot of photographers out there found the same thing. Being a photographer means you are on a never-ending quest for the right bag. It sounds like you guys may have 
ended your quest, but I'm still looking for the right bag just just to have every little well, thing yeah, I want. I think we know by now that there is no right bag. The thing I, you know, the other great thing I can say about the cod bags is they're not expensive. I mean, you know, the one I have, which yeah. is a sensitivity five, and the one that Alex is talking about, they're both like eighty bucks. Yeah. Oh. And, wow. And, you know, so it, it's yeah, it's it's just, even if it's the second bag for you, it's worth having one. And it's just really well thought out. The, all the Kata bags, when it comes to being a photographer or a videographer, the bags are just total. We have ones that are, for my little, I have a little, you know, one that I use like that. And then we have a big one for one of our big cameras. Uh, and, and everything is just, every little pocket and all the little pieces are all just really well thought out. Love it. Yeah. Love it. All right. This week in bags. <laughs> anyway. Yep. All right. So, uh, Ron Brakeman, what's your pick of the week? My pick of the week which I wrote down and don't remember, and I'm looking for right now. Oh, yes. Um, this is sort of photography-related, but uh, there's a website called HighlightCam.com, H-I-L-I-G-H-T-C-A-M.com, mm-hmm. that uh, basically gives you uh, a surveillance camera off your webcam in the sense that it does motion detection of movement. So you can set up your... It's just a website that uh, uses, I think, Flash to get to your, uh, your built-in web camera on your laptop or whatever you have uh, and just starts recording what it sees pushing it up to the web but the thing it does is smart is it only records when there's motion in frame so if you set this up you know looking at uh, uh, looking at your backyard or uh, looking at the living room when the maid comes or whatever you know it will only be recording while it is uh, while there's movement happening in the frame so you don't get this massive you know, either a massive file that you have to go through or, more importantly, something that you may have to spend hours looking through just to see when something interesting happened. So it seemed like a cool uh, cool thing to kind of point out. I think you're going to see a lot more of this kind of stuff where there's smart algorithms behind what you're taking photos of or video of, uh, making some decisions for you and sort of helping to weed through a lot of extra data. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. So it's like a, a poor man's uh, security system. Just use the pretty much is yeah, and it's free. It's yeah, yeah you, you can you can sign up. You can actually use it without even registering. But you register, and then you can go online, and there's a place for it, and you can sort of see, you know, you can check what your camera is seeing remotely. So it's pretty handy. Well, long as nobody else is tapping into that feed, and they can see. You know, oh, right. let's see. Let me let me see if I can find that address by the IP address. And uh, oh, look, a nice new iMac. Yes. <laughs> and there's no one home. <laughs> we 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 installed a. We have an internet camera that we just installed a wireless one that, that is just uh, in our office of the studio, and uh, we're, we're planning to roll it out to allow Pixel members to watch. You know, productions getting produced oh, cool. um, live and be able to ask questions and stuff. And so that's coming in in the fall for them, but it's in test right now, and it's turned out to be incredibly useful. The guys sit there, it, they stream it to their iPhone, and they'll be sitting in the coffee shop downstairs to figure out when they should come up. You know, when we're between shoots, oh, and nice. um, it's awesome. That's cool. All right. Well, my pick of the week is the Sony Party Shot. It's a uh, robotic I face detection. You saw that, right? It's a robotic face-detecting tilt-swivel tripod head for uh, some of the PowerShot point-and-shoot cameras that Sony has out. Essentially, it's like I said, it's this little thing. looks like a little robot that sits on top of a little mini tripod. You put the camera on that and set it up somewhere, and it just like Ron, just like the thing you were just talking about, it waits for movement. But when it finds movement, it looks for the face in that using Sony's face detection technology. Yeah, I, wonder, I, wonder, I just want to say, I wonder where that technology came from. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Airports. 
<laughs> and then it takes a photo and, and matches the, the picture up against a library of known terrorists. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. And it feeds all of these through, you know, it feeds all yeah. these over the internet back to, uh, you know, combined with Ron's. It feeds everything out. Yeah, everything goes into one central computer. Yes. But I thought it was pretty cool, and I read some of the comments on there that on on the the CNET uh, page that reviews it that we'll link to in the show notes. But it, uh, a lot of people were saying, you know, I don't want a camera there snapping a picture every time it sees a person at a party because the whole idea is to put this thing at a party on the bar or something, and every time somebody gets close to it, it takes your picture, which would get a little annoying after about the first. I don't know, maybe four minutes. <laughs> so yeah, but so, they need to get the they need to get the logic in there where it only takes pictures of people doing stupid stuff at a party, which is far more you know what you want anyway. So we'll or once or once, you know, if you take a picture of a person, record that you t- you know that face and don't shoot it again after that, or only shoot it once more or something. But yeah, it was an interesting technology, just to, not not even for parties or things like that, but for different kinds of events where you want some random portraits. So I thought it was pretty interesting to see robotics making its way into the stuff that we do. And Alex, I'd like to see this technology married with uh, that panoramic thing, um, bobber thing you have. What is that thing called? Oh, the Gigapan. The Gigapan. What if they married this thing with the Gigapan? <laughs> where you just kind of set it up and, you know. It just takes panoramas of people's faces. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where I'm going with this. I, <laughs> I just want to see things get together. You yeah, know? I just want, I I just want robots. I want robots. I yep. robot. Yeah, that's always good. All right. Coming up next week on This Week in Photography, we're going to have uh, an interview by none other than the, that, uh, the married guy who got married twice, apparently, Steve Simon. Um, he interviewed one of Colorado's most highly regarded location corporate photographers, David Extejeda. So uh, that'll be next week on This Week in Photography. And I think that's going to bring us to a close. Alex Lindsay, as if people didn't know, where can they find you if they want to find out more about you or stalk you and that kind of stuff? They can find me on the Twitters. It's the easiest mm-hmm. place. Alex the Lindsay, all one word. Yep. Excellent. And Mr. Brinkman? Ron Brinkman, all one word, on the Twitters. All right, same here, and I'm just Frederick Van on Twitter, and I avoid using the phrase the Twitters. And that's <laughs> it. <laughs> that, that brings us to the end of another episode of This Week in Photography. It is time to take that lens cap off. Off.